We are going through the life of Christ. It was about a three, three and a half year ministry. We are going to spend almost that much time going through his, his life and uh, talking about it. And yet, when we go through the life of Christ, remember, all of the teachings, all of his events, they are not recorded. If everything was recorded, all the books of the world could not contain all the truth that, that he gave and shared. But we are in the last few months. Actually, I should move that arrow down to where it's right at the border of the final six months in and around Jerusalem and his passion. We are closing in on the very last weeks of his final six months and right about to enter into the passion. He has gone over in these last six months, he has gone over to the Transjordan area beyond the Jordan River preaching because the last time he was in Jerusalem, they wanted to kill him. They picked up stones when he gave the good shepherd. He said, I am, uh, you know, before Abraham was, I am. And so that's in John 10. They wanted to kill him. He goes off. He spends several weeks in Perea in that Transjordan ministry. He is now on his way back, headed towards Jerusalem for the Passion Week. Luke alone records a lot of the things he taught. He taught a lot of lessons. We have highlighted in Luke 15, just to get the context for what we're talking about this morning. Luke 15, the Pharisees were teaching that God does what towards the sinners? What's God's attitude towards the sinners? He hates them. He delights in their destruction. That's what the Pharisees had taught. But God loves the righteous. Therefore, the Pharisees said, God loves me because I'm righteous, according to the Pharisees' teaching. And so Jesus had to correct that. And when he corrected it, remember he taught via the parable three different stories that are combined into one, that God loves the sinner. And he uses that via the man with the lost sheep, the woman with the lost coin, and the prodigal son. He's trying to correct their teaching. And the only person in those three stories, the only person who wanted destruction... And who was upset that there was a reception for the repentant was who? The older brother of the prodigal. Jesus is equating the Pharisees with who? That older brother. And so he's trying to correct their teaching. Now what he does is he goes along. And in Luke 16 he has to correct their teaching with his disciples. They have heard it their entire life. By the way, if you hear something your entire life, can that influence your thought pattern later on even? Yeah, absolutely. So they've been hearing all along, God hates sinners. So he's got to correct that. They've been hearing some teaching for years in Sabbath school and elsewhere about money. The attitude that the, that the, um, that the Pharisees had was God loves which group of people? The rich people, because riches show that you are being blessed of God, therefore you are favored. Now, Jesus starts off this section talking to his, his disciples. He gives them the parable of the unjust steward, and basically the conclusion of that is the steward was commended for acting very quickly by using money to make friends to secure his future because he'd have blown it. Jesus uses that, that analogy just to say to his disciples, use the finances that you have to, pre, to secure the future for yourself with, with blessings of God to you others by getting them born again. Make friends with mammon. And so he's giving them an idea that money is a tool that can be used for the glory of God. Money in and of itself is not the root of all evil. What is? The love of money. Okay, and okay, the thought pattern. So then he turns to the Pharisees and he, who have already, we've mentioned, who have been teaching that according to Deuteronomy chapter 28, God blesses those who will be faithful. They made it very personal rather than a national uh, application. And so they said that means that if we have money, God is blessing us. God favors us. It's okay to seek after wealth. Wealthy people are pretty certain they'll get into heaven. That was what they were teaching. Jesus is going to point out they had 
twisted scriptures like they did with marriage and divorce. And he uses that analogy in Luke 17. So as you're reading through the chapter, it flows together if you keep the context in mind. What he does then is he gives a real-life story to point out that wealthy are not guaranteed heaven. That was an eye-opener for the disciples because they've been taught differently. It's an eye-opener for the Pharisees because they have been teaching differently. And he gives the story of the rich man and Lazarus, which I don't believe is a parable, but I think it's an actual story based upon the idea it's the only time he uses a a proper name, a particular name in the midst of this account. The story of the rich man, he talks about the rich man, he gives us different data about him in, in in this account, and we're in, I said 17, actually we're in the end of verse 16, where he talks in verse 16, uh, chapter 16, verse 19, there's a certain rich man, he gives a description of him, he talks about the beggar, Lazarus, full of sores, desiring to be fed of the crumbs. We talked about how this rich man obviously is not spiritual by Old Testament standards, that he does not care for the poor. The uh, poor man, Lazarus, we know that he's begging, he's destitute, can't even protect himself from the dogs that are looking at his sores, he has to be laid outside the gate. He can't move himself. But they have something in common. We read about that in verse 22. That both of them have the same experience. They both die. Okay, And then they enter into the afterlife and they continue on. Now they don't end up in the same spot and yet they end up close to each other. How is that possible? That's where we left off last week just talking about it. Let's get the contextual thought. Okay, Because you and I often when we read this story we grab other, we grab other important data out of there but we forget the contextual thought. The contextual thought that Jesus is getting at is this information right here that we're sharing with you. Rich people are not guaranteed a place in heaven. That's what he's dealing with at this moment with the Pharisees and their false teaching, erroneous teaching. As well, he is trying to point out that wealth does not mean God approves all that you do or how you treat others. It is not the great eliminator of guilt. Okay, Wealth does not mean God loves you above those who are poor. That's going to be very clear because the rich man ends up where? In hell. Where does Lazarus end up? In Abraham's bosom. Okay, And so the one who is enjoying the comfort of eternity is the poorer person in this account. The one who is experiencing the torments is the rich man. Now that's going to, again, be, that's going to shake the socks of the Pharisees. Okay, Shake their sandals. Okay, Poverty does not mean God is against you. Poverty does not mean God condemns you in this life and in the afterlife. Though they said that, he is correcting this teaching. And that's his point. Wealth does not buy peace now or luxury in the future. Might buy luxury now, but not in the future. That's his gist of the context and what he's teaching. Now, you and I can also jump out of the, jump within the text and get facts that are given by this story, facts about the afterlife, which most of us, that's what we focus on. And so we were last week just saying, how is it that these two men are so close and yet so divided? And how is that compared to what we know as heaven and hell today and what is preached? Because today we preach heaven is basically in which direction? Okay, we usually talk about up. And why do we do that? Because Jesus ascended up into the air, up into heaven. And he talks about coming down into the clouds to rapture us. And so we get the impression from Scripture heaven is this direction. We have the impression in Scripture that hell is which direction? 
Okay, it's down. It's the, the we, we even, you know, in, in careful terminology you might say, go down there, or it's that a direction, you know, the lower place. Then you read in Luke 16, and you have this account where he's saying, and in hell he lifted up his eyes being in torments and saw Abraham afar off, Lazarus in his bosom, and he says, have mercy on me, and they're able to communicate. Does that indicate that people in heaven today are able to communicate with people in hell below? Does that communicate there's a full awareness? Well, what it does indicate that at one time, and at this time, as I understand the scriptures, and others may disagree, which is their prerogative, that hell and heaven, uh, or paradise, were located similar direction, in a similar spot. And based that, and I didn't, I should have gone giving you the Old Testament references about Sheol, the place of the dead, being lower, and David even talking about being in that lower place. The place of the dead in the Old Testament era was called hell or paradise, Abraham's bosom. Both of them together could be called Sheol, okay, in the Hebrew. He, Sheol simply means the place of the dead, as well Hades does too. Okay, the, the two places were apparently near each other, but they are separated by a gulf. So let's just put it this way for sake of illustration. I am here in Abraham's bosom and Joe is in hell. Okay, um, just for illustration's sake, brother. Okay, and you wouldn't be laughing. You would be in pain. Okay, and so this is the great gulf that's fixed between us. And I'm so glad you sat in the front. This is the appropriate person. Um, here we go. At the time we're there... Okay, there's communication. There's a great gulf, and yet we could communicate. We could converse, and we could talk to one another. In First Peter chapter 2, okay, we closed with this last week. In First Peter 2, it says that Jesus went into Sheol, or Hades, and he preached unto the dead who had been, uh, who had been from the time of Noah's day, the unrighteous dead. How could he preach to them? Okay, and when did he preach to him? The three days that he, after he died on the cross and before he resurrected, he is in this place, Abraham's bosom. He is speaking to them and talking with them and able to communicate to them and be able to reveal, relate, inform, whatever the amount. I mean, they can't preach to have repentance. It's impossible to get out of there. And so this is, this is the place of the dead in the Old Testament era. Okay, if, to picture it, we would have something like this, that you would have Abraham's bosom, the great golf, and then you'd have Joe sitting in the lower place, the lower part. So in theological books, you read the upper shield, you'll read the lower shield, and with that idea in mind that there's the gap between them. A little bit more. Jesus ascends when he does, according to Ephesians chapter 4, he led captivity captive when he ascended. The idea is he released those who were in the paradise and when he ascends and goes into heaven, there's a transference of this paradise into what we know today as heaven. So that absent from the body is present with the Lord, that we go up into the air, into the sky, into that realm above us, as opposed to below us. That happened at the ascension of Jesus Christ. He's the first one to have resurrected, the first one to ascend it, but he transfers Abraham's bosom up into heaven to where it is today. So that we don't go to Abraham's bosom, we don't even have that term we talk about going to heaven okay and so what that implies now watch the, the implication that implies that this upper chamber was a temporary place of rest 
That it wasn't a long-term eternal spot, but those who went there would live eternally in peace and in comfort. They would have the characteristics, but not the confines of the paradise uh, of the Abraham's bosom. But they had the they had the characteristics, the enjoyment of eternal rest, which in transference to heaven, they still have the eternal rest. So when you talk about it and say it's a place where they spend eternity in. The experiences are eternal. The exact place was transferred to heaven. Um, Add to it. Now when saints die, they go directly to heaven. We already mentioned it. So temporary place. In the same way where Joe is, and I don't want to get close to it, but where Joe is in the lower chamber, that's where people go today. That is still the hell that people go to where they experience the torments. But in the same way, is that hell a permanent, eternal spot? No. According to Revelation 22, what happens to that hell? It will be emptied out at one time. Remember? Everybody will be emptied out of there. They will be given their what kind of bodies? The resurrection bodies. And they will stand before God at the great white throne judgment. And after that, those people who are in that hell will be transferred into the lake of fire which burns forever and ever. So they have the experience and the torments that are eternal. It's just the confines goes from hell to the lake of fire. Basically what you have is out of the frying pan and into the fire. I mean, which... Wow. Okay, it gets only worse for him. And so uh, we have that concept in Scripture. So this place of the dead will one day be totally emptied out, and you'll have the eternal heaven, and you have the eternal damnation in the lake of fire. So other facts that are, that are revealed in this text are very important. Okay, these are the facts that are really critical for you and I today, especially those who are born again. We know that when a person dies, they continue to exist as an individual. That's a fact. Both Abraham and Lazarus still are, I'm sorry. Uh, Yeah, both Abraham and Lazarus and the rich man. They are still Abraham, Lazarus, and the rich man. They do not have their resurrected bodies, but they are identifiable as Abraham, Lazarus, and the rich man. In fact, look at the description of these people. That's very interesting. What do you notice about them? Not only do they have the individualistic characteristic and visage that they had on earth, that they're recognizable, but what else do they have? What features do they have in their spirit? They have a voice. Okay. What else do they have? He says, I wish that somebody would do what with the water? He is so thirsty. Just take and dip a drop of water and put it where? On his tongue. They still have people in the spiritual state have fingers. They have voices. They have tongues, they can see, they can communicate. Do they have memory of their life, previous life? Yeah, look at the passage. He says, you remember you in your lifetime. What else do they remember from the past? Family. And not only do they remember them, but what does he display about family? He's really concerned about family. Send somebody to talk to who, does he say? to my brothers and warn them about this place. Let's make these observations. They're still identifiable. When somebody leaves their body, okay, we had that experience this past week that one of our members, Claude, passed away. Claude continues to exist. Though his body ceased to function last Saturday night, he continues to live. 
Okay? He's, he's got cloddish characteristics. I meant that with his name, not the... Okay, that was terrible the way I said that. Um, I meant Claude-like characteristics, okay? It's, he's still Claude. He's recognizable as Claude. Does he sound like him? Probably. Okay, does he still have fingers and eyes? And by the way, in the spirit, do you have sensation without physical nerve endings? Yeah, you do. You do, because what sensations do they have? Thirst? Torment? For the one in hell, what, is, what sensation does, does the Lazarus have? Comfort? Peace? Okay, so without our nerve endings, we still have sensation. Okay, there's, there's all those experiences. They have the finger, mouth, sensations, feelings, talk, desires. Their spirit bodies are able to communicate, okay, in, this, in the afterlife. They retain memory of their life. They retain full memory of their family relationships from their life on earth. That doesn't go away. That isn't eradicated. They're, uh, but here's, a, here's a, a catch. They are unable to leave the place that they're at. Okay, in this passage, he says that there's this great gulf fixed... And he says in verse 26, we can't pass from hither and yon. Okay, there's a, there's a very practical truth in this. Let's keep it going. Okay, in paradise, there's total peace and comfort. The one in hell, and by the way, that transference from paradise is even to a better place, heaven, where Jesus is, so it's even better. No one in hell, this is, this is important to the people you talk to. No one in hell, the one in hell had regrets and concern and did not want his family to join him. Now, is that opposite of what people think hell is like today? Do people say, when I get to hell, we'll all be together and we will, we'll party and it'll, we'll have a grand old time. This guy's not having a grand old time. He does not want his family to join him. He experienced great torments. Four times he talks about the word torments in the text. He is including pain, thirst, emotional agony. And he's, he's got life of regrets. He's not having a good time in hell. It is not a place where it's party hardy. That's just the opposite. He does not want people to join him. You know, if I can say it in a, in a, in a clever way, some of, the, some of those who are the most concerned about soul winning are people in hell. They want others to be one so they don't join them. Okay? You have as well, there's the comment that is made that he says, okay, I don't want my brothers to join me. Now here's some other practical outworking in what we see in here today as far as communication in the spirit realm. He says to Father Abraham, he says, I pray you that you would send someone from here to warn my five brothers, lest they come to the place. Father Abraham responds in verse 29. And he says, oh yeah, if we sent somebody from the dead... That would convince them. No, he doesn't say that. Well, if we let somebody from paradise have experiences and go back to earth and tell everybody, they'll believe it. And that'll convince them. No, he doesn't say that. In fact, he says the most, the most impacting and most powerful tool for witnessing is what? The word of God. He says to him very clearly. He says, they have Moses and the prophets. You and I understand. At that point, they have the word of God. Let them hear them. And he said, no, no, no. But if one went from the dead, then they will repent. And spiritual response, if they will not hear the word of God, neither will they be persuaded that one rose from the dead. Okay? How does that play out in what we hear in America? Is there a tendency towards sensationalism and personal experiences 
trying to convince people of heaven. Do we get books about that? Do we get films about that? Oh, that'll convince them. According to the word of God, what is your most powerful tool of evangelism? It's the word of God. It is not somebody's experiences. Because experiences can be discounted, can they not? Okay? And they are not reliable in all cases. Correct? Okay, what about the people that say, well, wait a minute. Okay, I'm going to pick on you a second. Uncle Joe, who we don't believe is born again. Okay, not you, but in this illustration. Uncle Joe has come and visited me. And he sat at the foot of my bed and we had conversation. He died 20 years ago. He looked like Uncle Joe, sounded like Uncle Joe, and he came and talked to me. And he didn't talk about a hell. He didn't talk about a terrible place. And he wasn't a religious man. And he, but he talks about having peace and wonderful life. And you just, just, you'll find, he told me to find my own way. And every road leads to heaven. And he told me that. And it had to be Uncle Joe because Uncle Joe knew things about me and our family that nobody else would know. Okay. Biblically, from a biblical point of view, could Uncle Joe, who's in hell, make that visit? He can't. He can't. You, you can't say, well, somebody had that experience. That doesn't, experiences do not count against Scripture. Scripture is our authority. Yes? Yes? Okay. Then what if that's not Uncle Joe, because Uncle Joe, who is an unbeliever, is in hell, then who's visiting those people and telling them, don't worry about the afterlife, and you can err in all, in all roads that lead to heaven? Could the devil, could a demonic spirit duplicate or be an imposter to give false assurances? Absolutely. Can they even appear in human form? Sure. Do they know details about our lives and families? Absolutely. Absolutely. So you and I need to be very, very careful that we don't get outside the realm of the Bible and say, yeah, but I know of this account. It doesn't make any difference. I know what the Bible says is what you need to respond. The Bible says that when, we go to, when somebody goes to hell, they are there forever. Or the only exception is when they get out of hell and they get put into, yeah, out of the... Out of the you know, frying pan in the fire. Okay, what about the people who are in heaven? Wow, if you send one of them from heaven, it'll convince. Well, according to this text, that is not what God thinks. That is not God's idea of evangelism. So why would we say, well, we have all these people and these experiences of people dying, going to heaven, and coming back, when the Word of God says that's not what God puts stock in? Why would we then put stock into it? Why would we say, well, experience um, overrides Scripture? I don't, I don't think experience does. I think that God has made the burden of witnessing not upon people who have died and he sends them back. The burden of witnessing is upon who? Those of us who are here and we use a tool. The Bible, the Word of God. We use the Word of God, and we stick with the Word of God. Okay, what do we know about hell? If you were to describe hell from this text, what would you say it's like? It's hot. It's hot. You're, there forever. You're there, yep. What else? No relief. no relief. What else? Torment. Anything else? Can't get out. Can't get out. Okay. 
We know this one. We know it's a literal place, correct? I'm going to throw, I mentioned this at, the, at Claude's funeral the other night. Jesus spoke about hell six times more than he did about heaven. Okay? So if we believe Jesus about heaven, we've got to believe Jesus about hell. It's a real place, okay? Place of torments that many of you... By the way, is there, is there mental torments, not just physical? Sure, because the regrets and things of that sort. One is conscious of their, conscious of their separation from what is good and godly. He recognizes his lostness. And if there was any question about his lostness, Father Abraham cleared it up. I think the same thing is probably true with Jesus Christ. When he spoke to those spirits that were confined in, that, in the lower Hades, he's probably confirmed and you know, made confirmation. And I think he does that in the future as well. In the future, what does he bring out when they are before the, lake of, uh, the great white throne judgment? What does he bring out and point out to, about their past? He brings up their works. He brings up the words. Why? Well, they're condemned because of unbelief, but also what do the works and the words do? They confirm the condemnation, that it is just, correct? Okay, by pointing out sin. Um, where one is in, where one is, yeah, it's a place where one is there forever without hope of escape or rescue. Let's make some observations. Okay, let's pull this, one, this account together. Now, again, you understood what I did just the last few minutes. I focused on the subordinate ideas that are very important, heaven and hell. If we're going to say contextually, Jesus was highlighting in this text the idea of wealth doesn't get you to heaven. But he gave us a lot of details about hell. Although we do not know much about the spiritual condition, of these two men, Jesus' main point is clear. Rich people are not guaranteed heaven, as well poor people are not guaranteed hell. Okay, let's go on. Pharisees were wrong. They're wrong about their basic views of wealth and poverty. They were wrong about a whole lot of stuff, weren't they? Okay, uh, wealth did not, does not indicate divine favor. Is that still a problem in people's thinking in modern day America? Yeah, it's still an issue for us in this country, is it not? Okay, um, so we have to be very careful with this. God did not, does not love the rich more than the poor, contrary to what the Pharisees were teaching. That's an important thought, and that still is applicable to us today. Oh, by the way, do some churches, some churches think if we've got money, we're okay? Or property or numbers? Does that mean might makes right? Okay, that is a true, that is a concept. It's not a biblical concept, but it is a concept that goes right along with this that says, wait a minute, just because you've got, you've got material goods doesn't mean you're good and doing good work. Let's go on. The story reveals many details and facts about our afterlife and hell in particular. It is not God's pattern to send people back from the dead to convince others of heaven or hell. He put little stock in this type of witnessing. My personal opinion, I think I should too. I am not, not going to jump on the bandwagon that says, well, this person or this Christian, they saw Jesus, they saw God. I, I tell you what, according to 1 Corinthians, the person who did see heaven and God did send them back, they said there are things that are unspeakable. It is beyond my description and didn't describe it. Why? 
Because God says you've got the word. They've got the word. So I'd be very leery and am very leery of the books, the movies, the special speakers that, that I get encouraged to invite into our church by people that say, oh, if, they, if you had somebody in who had died and they had the experience and they were dead for an hour or two and they saw heaven and if we had them in, we would have evangelism like never before. If God put a little stock in that, I'm going to stick with that and have people come in and preach the word. Okay, because that's what he says in this text. Be careful of errant thoughts. Lazarus did not go to heaven because he was poor. Now, that's the, that's the difficulty that some will run with this passage. They say Lazarus, and, and I've heard this preached, Lazarus got to heaven because he was poor. What else did happen that some will say? Because he, did, he had what other? Okay, he, he had diseases. He suffered. And since he suffered so much in this life, surely he will be rewarded in heaven. Do you ever hear that thought? Okay. That's not what the passage says. Okay. And so we have to be very careful with that. Why? Because though it is never defined about his faith, and it never is defined in detail about the rich man's faith, you can't just plug this story out of, or pull this story out of Scripture and say, well, this story is teaching if you suffer enough in this life, you go to heaven. Where else did Jesus ever preach that or even allude to that? He didn't. What did Jesus say? You must be born again. Okay, so we have, to, we have to compare Scripture with Scripture. Then, what happens is you read through, now you're at the end, you're reading the last few words of, of verse 31. If they hear not Moses and the prophets, neither will they per, be persuaded the one rose from the dead. We don't know what the Pharisees did this time. Now, we've heard that before. If you jump all the way back to verses 14 and 15, uh, verse 14, before, when Jesus taught the other things about, about wealth and finances, when he taught about the love of God, we got a response from the Pharisees. Luke records no response. We don't know what they did with it. And so we're left with it with the hope and the assurance that maybe it got through to some. Now I'm going to jump and say, in the book of Acts, do some of the Pharisees get born again in the future? They do. They do. Grace of God. Some of this teaching is planting seed, getting through to them, they get born again. Now read in verse seven, chapter 17, Jesus is now going to turn and speak to what group of people? 17 verse 1. If you have a red letter edition, it makes it easier because you got black letters. Okay. Who's he going to, the next section is to the disciples. He's teaching and he's going to, in this continuation of exactly where it's at, Transjordan, I don't know, neither do you, neither does anybody. But he's going to give some teaching. Some of this teaching will sound repetitious to what you've read in Matthew chapter 18. I don't think it's the same story, the same account recorded two different ways. I think he is repeating later on now. Matthew 18 was early in his Galilean ministry. Now, as he's wrapping up with the disciples, he's going to repeat some of the truths he's already given. And there are some differences between what he said in Matthew 18 and how he says it in Luke 17. And he's going, to, he's going to stress some very important Christian issues. Not born again, but beyond that. And so what he starts talking about as he's en route, headed somewhere from Transjordan, headed into the area of Jerusalem, he has been real harsh with the Pharisees, and he's been very blunt with them. By the way, let me, let me throw this out. 
If, um, let's say, Brian, if you, if this were happened, if you were speaking harshly about, you're real good, you have good relationships with your neighbors, so I know this isn't the case. But um, if you started speaking really harshly about your neighbor and you were rude to your neighbor, what, what might Gene do if he was talking to your neighbor? Oh, he might, Gene might, but <laughs> typically what, what would most kids do? If dad and mom are busting on the neighbor... They would bust too. Okay. Think with me for a moment. If Jesus is busting on the Pharisees, and he's had some real blunt conversations in chapters 15, 16, uh, up to this point, what might the disciples have a tendency to do? Same thing. And when Jesus is gone, they might not receive them. Correct? They might, be, they might hold some animosity because later on, not only did, did they get the example of how Jesus preached to them and spoke to them, what, what happens within a few weeks from now? What do the Pharisees do to Jesus? They kill him. Okay, so Jesus is preparing his disciples for ministry when he's gone. Okay, he's wrapping up his ministry. He's got to prepare his disciples to be somewhat open and receptive to the Pharisees or to anybody else who at this moment is not receptive. Does that make sense? Because they might receive the truth later on. Can you think of a character that did that? That the disciples were really reluctant to hang around? Paul, when he gets saved. Okay, so now some of this teaching, I I think what he's doing is preparing his disciples for future ministry, which might include ministering to Pharisees and to those who at this moment, when it's happening at this, this Luke 17 time, they are not really welcoming Jesus. They have been confronting him. They have been in opposition to him. And they'll be a part of the crowd that says, crucify him. Free and give us who instead of Jesus? Give us Barabbas. Okay, and so Jesus is instructing him how to deal with these people. One of the things he says in chapter 17, verses 1 and 2, that it's the key thought, is you and I need to be careful we don't stumble others. Look at 17. This is his teaching to disciples. It is impossible, but that offenses will come. But woe unto him through whom they come. It were better for him that a millstone were hanged about his neck and he cast into the sea than that he should offend one of these little ones. Okay, here's, that, that's the gist. And he's going to get into a couple other thoughts. He's giving them a caution. Offenses will, what's he mean? Offenses will happen. Are we going to get along all the time with everyone who's a believer? Yes, no? By this shall all men know that you are my disciples if you have... Love one's friend. So we will, in, in Christianity, we will love one another without any difficulties or problems once we get born again. It doesn't work. That, should it work that way? Yes. But does it actually work that way? Okay. Do, do you see what Jesus is? Jesus is a realist. Right? He is saying realistically, could you have people problems? That's what he's getting at, okay? He's saying that we will have issues. We sinful people, oh, by the way, that's our problem, is it not? Isn't this the issue? Shouldn't we as believers at church get along? Yes, okay? Should we ever create problems for one another? No. Jesus says it will happen because what's our problem? We're still sinners. We're still sinners, 
Okay? And so, you know, I'm going to find a place where we don't have people problems. The only place where you, where you can possibly not have people problems is heaven. Okay? When our sin nature is taken. There's only one other place. You lock yourself in a room and stay by yourself. Do not look in the mirror. Okay? Because then you may still have people problems. Okay? Just all by your lonesome. What is the offense? The word that he uses here, this is critical for you and I understand this. The word is scandal on. We get what kind of word? What's, what English word? Yeah. Okay. Scandalize, scandalous. Okay. It is the trap. It is the literally, the, you know, like you put that little that box up. You, you tried in your backyard when you were a kid. You were going to trap the, the rabbits. You put that cardboard box or whatever, and you had that little stick there, and you were waiting for those rabbits. They never ran directly under the box, but you were going to pull the stick. The stick is a scandal on. Okay, it is the trigger mechanism. It is that which snares people. It's the idea of causing another person to get snared, to stumble, to fall into some type of sin. Now, according to scriptures, now I'm going to expand upon his comment here. If we read in the epistles, he identifies three ways that we often, we can offend one another. And these offenses do come. One of the ways it happens is what we say one to another. And how we say things. For in many things we offend all. If any man offend not the same perfect man. My brother. These things ought not to be. Because sometimes we can. In our words say things. Or the way we say them harshly. Have you ever had the experience. That you said something in a way. Or words that you wish you hadn't said. But it caused a problem. Okay. Now I've done it. I do it all the time. I do it almost every week. Okay. But the, the issue here is. We have to be careful what we say. There's another way we offend in the New Testament. What we do to or before others. We read in 1 Corinthians, Take heed lest this liberty by any means your liberty becomes a stumbling block. So I take the liberty of... Oh, let, me, let me throw the, the issue out. I would want to be careful with somebody where I take them to eat. Yes? Because some places, some restaurants might do what? They might serve alcohol. I don't want to take somebody there for a meal if that person is struggling with the temptation of alcohol, okay? Now, you might say, well, I don't have a problem. That's, that's your personal liberty. You've never struggled. You never tasted alcohol. And you say, okay, it's a good restaurant, and the, you know, they have wine on the menu, and I'm going to go there and don't have a problem. That's your liberty. But your liberty ends at another person's temptation, Okay, and so he, that's one way we have to be very careful. Okay, we could do that with TV, we could do that with, you name it, all variety of different things we have to be careful with uh, and respect one another by what we think. Let us therefore judge, not judge one, let's stop judging one another, but judge this, that we put no stumbling block. Do you remember the judgment that's taking place in Romans 14? The, the more mature believers... Um, that's, not, that's not correct, I'm saying it wrong. Those who think they are the more mature believers are criticizing those that they think are less mature. And those who are less mature are saying, wait a minute, you're eating the meat that was, in the, that was used at the marketplace and the, the supposedly mature person is saying, yeah, but this meat is just plain meat even though it was offered at one time to an idol. That doesn't make any difference. The weaker, the, the quote-unquote weaker Christian is saying, yeah, but you shouldn't touch anything that, ha- that was tainted by idols. And the... The older Christian says, yeah, but it didn't change the molecular structure. It's still meat. 
You know, and I know that that God that it was worshipped to is, is, isn't even a God. It doesn't bother me. But it bothers me that you do this. And there was judgment. Not just the action, but judgment that the younger ones were highly critical. And the older ones, or the, the supposedly thought they were more mature, were highly critical. And it says they would not receive or welcome one another. And they were being very judgmental. He says, you've got to stop this. You got to stop this animosity, this lack of fellowship between you. And so Jesus writes and says, do not stumble people. Do not cause them spiritual problems by, by um, judgment or deeds you do. So who are we to be careful we don't stumble? He says in the text, do not put an offense before what people? The what? The little ones. Who are the little ones? Now remember in Matthew chapter um, 17... When he dealt with this, what did he do when he was speaking in Galilee? This isn't Galilee now, this is elsewhere. He sits down and what does he pull to himself? A child. And then he starts teaching about the little ones. Okay, so we have more of an idea back then who he was referring to. Question, could he be doing the same thing now? Could it be physical children? Could be. Could he be talking about their kids and the parents? You got to be careful you don't stumble your children. Could be. Could he be talking about the young believers that have been mentioned in chapter 15, verse 1? Those who were the, um, the uh, publicans and the sinners that others were putting down. Could be. Could he be talking about those who are young and understanding? Some of those who have come in the crowd and they're saying, I'm not sure about this Jesus. I'm not sure about this. And they've, they've had some step of faith. Could be. Could it be the Pharisees who will come in faith later on because they've been the topic of discussion for the last two chapters. Could it be that these are the little ones in their understanding and their theology and when they get saved, you've got to be careful that you don't, you don't push them away by your attitude. Could be. Uh, the idea here is we believers, this is what he's laying out, we have to have a corporate care for others in the community of faith. That's called the church. We need to have concern for one another that we do not stumble one another. What are the consequences for those who stumble? Well, look what he says. He says, those who do not care and say, I can do whatever I want. He says, whoa, 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 whoa. It is better for him that a millstone were hanged about his neck and he cast into the sea. Watch this, okay? He uses an exaggeration to make a point. But his point is, stumbling another Christian is a very serious matter. It is really, really important to Jesus Christ. It should be important to us that we're very careful and cautious what we do by example, what we do, do by response. The offender will face serious consequences. In fact, he says, it is better that you have this happen to you, then you stumble. Well, why is it better? What is the other option? I mean, his implication is there's going to be judgment. There's going to be severe judgment. You will face some severe repercussions from God Almighty if you are not careful and concerned about one another. So he says, we better do this. We got to be very careful. Now watch where he goes with this. Right away, the response could be, from those of us who are more concerned about not what I do to others, but we are more concerned about what others do to me. Now, that would never happen amongst any of us here, right? That it is, we, we sometimes, and I'm, I'm, I'm being tongue-in-cheek facetious, do we at times come to church more, more interested in not what we do for others, but we are looking to see what do they do for me? 
I'm, gonna make, I'm, I'm not here looking to see how many people I can minister to and talk to and befriend. I'm coming here looking to see who's going to talk to me. Who's going to make the first move. So the response here is the typical response of us who are struggling with old sin nature and selfish is the t- typical question is, well, what if, what if they offend me? You're saying, I've got to be careful I don't offend somebody. But what if they do it to me? He deals with it. He goes right into it. He says, okay, if your brother trespassed against you, watch his two commands that he develops in the text. He says, in, as he goes on, verse, t- verse 3, take heed to yourselves. Okay, watch yourself. If your brother trespass against you, what's the first command? Rebuke. What's the second command? Forgive. Okay, watch this. If we've been stumbled, if we've been hurt, by somebody else, and it's causing a spiritual question, concern, difficulty. We are not to give in to anger, self-pity, revenge, attack mode. We're not to seek to embarrass them. We're not supposed to go and tell others. What does he tell us to do? What's the command, the first command? If you've been hurt, you're supposed to do what? You're supposed to rebuke that person. Okay, well, now watch this. We're not to ignore the situation. We're not to run from the situation. We're not to, um, what are we putting here? Okay, we're not to say, okay, it didn't happen. If it happened and it's hurting you, you and I are to deal with it. Do you make sense so far? Okay, what we're supposed to understand is he is saying that if I have been offended and hurt and it's causing me spiritual dilemma here, it is not only good for me to deal with it, it could be good for Jim. Because the reality, if Jim has caused me some spiritual consternation, what could be the reality here? I'm getting mad at Jim and I'm trying to avoid Jim and I'm busting on Jim to Deb. What could be a reality in Jim's case? He didn't even know he did anything. Or he's doing something to me that he doesn't realize is a problem. And if he does it to me, he could do it to others. And so I'm supposed to help him. The rebuke is mutual. It helps me and it helps him. Yes? Does that make sense? Uh, what's the problem here? What's the hard part of it, of this whole thing? Doing it. Doing it. How many of you love to go up and say, Jim? Now, you may want to on Jim, but I mean, how many of you want to go up to somebody and say, hey, listen, I'm struggling. I have a real problem. You've told, you've been making a joke of something and it sounds very prejudicial, and it really bothers me. The way you're, the way you're saying this, and it's, it's causing me some real spiritual struggles uh, by what you're saying about, about this matter. And you and I say, oh, that's too hard. That's too hard. But if it bothers you enough that you talk to other people, it bothers you. If it bothers you enough that you say, yeah, I'll never ever talk to Jim again, it bothers you. If it bothers you enough that you say, okay, um, you know, I want nothing to do with, with church ever, ever, ever again. It bothers you. Yes? 
If it's keeping you from praying because it's, it's just, it bothers you, you got to deal with it. you got to do what Scripture says. Scripture does not say, go to the pastor and, re- and have the pastor rebuke everyone. It says you are to go to that person, okay, and you deal with it. By the way, who's being stretched in this? You and them. Okay, now there's more to this. Okay, you go and rebuke the person. Let them know they caused the offense. Watch this. He says, look at the words, if they repent. Focus on the word if. What does that tell you? What does that tell you that if I go to Jim, what might happen? He may not listen to me. He may not respond with repentance. This may not go so well. Because Jim might think, what? Go fly a kite. kite. Thanks, Jim. Okay. (laughs) He might think, go fly a kite. He might think he's not doing anything wrong. Okay. He might think, I'm over. Yes. Okay. So here's the point. Not all Christians take rebuke properly. Okay. If I were to be more honest here, I would say... Most all of us struggle with taking rebuke properly. Because what's your first reaction when you're rebuked? I mean, when Deb says to me, hey, you're doing something that really bothers me. My first reaction is, I'll get over it. Yeah. I know what you're going to change your message now, aren't you? My first reaction is go into self-defense mode. But his point is, we, you know, some may not, not acknowledge your hurt or accept their responsibility. Okay? That's a whole other issue that's worthy of discussion. But he says, okay, for those times when there is a good response, you have rebuked, and then you're supposed to number two. You're forgiving. Okay, let's build on there. This is, he's getting in some really, really tough stuff for the Christian. After he's just nailed the Pharisees, he's nailing his followers. So we'll pick up there next week. Thanks for listening.